treatment caused by the blemishes. Acne can also leave deep scars on the psyche. Despite these facts, close to two-thirds of our time was spent learning how to diagnose and treat other skin diseases. A full one-third of the residency was spent learning how to perform dermatological surgery. As a newly graduated dermatology resident with board certification, I opened a solo practice in Connecticut, where I quickly discovered that a large portion of my patients suffered from acne. I was comfortable treating my adolescent acne patients as I myself had suffered from fairly severe acne that began around the time I turned 14 and continued to plague me throughout my early and mid-twenties. I could empathize with the teenagers who came seeking my help. I had been there. When I developed acne in my teens, I lacked the financial means to seek professional medical advice or treatment for it. I haunted the corner drugstore searching the shelves for remedies. About the best I could find were products that contained active ingredients such as sulfur and a tented base, over-the-counter medicated cover-up creams. They helped a little at first, but soon lost their effectiveness. By the time I reached college, I finally began seeing a dermatologist. I was treated with a range of things, from ultraviolet radiation and oral antibiotics such as tetracycline, to topical abrasive scrubs containing tiny bits of sand, followed by tinted hydrocortisone-based lotions. The doctor also performed what I called acne surgery. He used an instrument to actually unplug the affected pores. We continued these treatments for approximately six months, after which I felt that there was not enough improvement to justify the time, expense, and discomfort. Following college graduation, I entered the Army, where I had severe acne flare-ups during both basic and advanced training. The Army, however, did not consider acne a disease worth treating, so there were no options open to me other than to endure the condition and bide my time. After I was discharged from active Army duty, I was once again employed, although I'd not yet decided to enter medicine. I immediately sought help from a dermatologist. I went through a number of treatments, none of which seemed to bring any relief, leaving me depressed and discouraged. One lucky day, a friend of mine told me about Dr. Sidney Hurwitz, one of the first pediatric dermatologists in the country. Dr. Hurwitz was a true innovator who kept up with the latest dermatological developments and treatments. He was achieving greater results than just about anyone in dermatology at that time. Dr. Hurwitz had been a board-certified practicing pediatrician who had decided to enter a three-year dermatological residency program to become a dermatologist. Now that his specialties were both dermatology and pediatrics, he limited his practice to patients no older than 16. Although I was well over that age, I was determined to see him. I called Dr. Hurwitz, explained my situation, and asked if he would make an exception in my case. Much to my delight, he said yes. During my first office visit, I was very impressed with Dr. Hurwitz, both as a man and as a physician. He was brimming with incredible enthusiasm for his work, and I could see that he loved taking care of his patients. For the first time in more than a decade, I felt a genuine sense of hope and renewed optimism. After examining my face and cataloging the long list of my previous treatments, he asked me an intriguing question. Have you tried vitamin A to treat your acne? In my ongoing search for a cure, I had read about vitamin A and taken large self-prescribed doses of the supplement, but had not seen any effects. I'm referring to a new form of vitamin A that is applied topically directly to the skin, he explained. The University of Pennsylvania has been conducting extensive research utilizing vitamin A acid 
and has a product in early clinical trials. He then told me that Johnson & Johnson had licensed the technology. I was ready and willing to be a guinea pig, and I eagerly agreed to participate in the study. Dr. Hurwitz used this new product on me in combination with other topical and oral medications, and over a period of a few months, my face completely cleared. In addition to the great joy and satisfaction I felt with my newly clear complexion, I also gained extensive first-hand knowledge of the latest and most effective acne treatments. This proved to be of great help to me in later years when I started my own practice. It was also a turning point in my life. It was Dr. Hurwitz's impressive dedication, skill, and thirst for knowledge that inspired me to follow him into dermatology. As the number of my acne patients began to multiply, I was eager to help them on their way to an acne-free future. However, to my surprise, close to half of these patients were men and women, mostly women, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. The remaining half were adolescents. As I well knew from my own experience, adolescent acne is usually characterized by an oily complexion. Yet my older female acne patients often had dry, sensitive skin. However, as is still true, the vast majority of available topical acne medications were developed to treat teenagers who have typical adolescent oily skin and contain ingredients that are actually drying and pro-inflammatory. This left me with few conventional treatment options for treating my adult patients. It also left me pondering the puzzle of why and how two such totally different skin types could suffer from the same disease. While having oily skin might exacerbate acne, it is not the root cause. I knew this because during my residency program at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, more than 80% of my patients were African American. African American skin is typically rich in sebaceous, oil-producing glands, yet African Americans suffer far less acne than other ethnic groups. It is interesting to note that acne in Africans is almost non-existent, yet there are instances of acne among African Americans, although as mentioned, less than other ethnic groups. Further, it is known that Native Americans had virtually no acne until their adoption of Western diets and intermarriage with other ethnic groups. What is clear is that there is some genetic component to acne. Obviously, the Western diet plays a major role in acne development, a fascinating topic we will cover later on. In order to begin to treat acne, we must first learn some simple anatomy of the skin. Let's begin at the surface, called the stratum corneum. It is made up of dead, protein-rich cells known as keratin, which acts as a protective barrier for the underlying cells. Just below the stratum corneum exists a layer of living cells called the spiny layer, because when these cells are viewed under the microscope, they appear to contain a series of little bridges. As we continue moving down through the epidermis, the outermost layer of the skin, we come to a layer known as the basal cells. The basal cells are constantly dividing and migrating toward the skin's surface and are the precursors to all of the layers we have just described. Simply stated, basal cells grow and divide, and as they move toward the surface of the skin, they mature, eventually becoming the dead layer known as the stratum corneum. This maturation process of basal cells into the stratum corneum is called keratinization. To understand the physical changes that cause acne, it is important to understand the microscopic processes that produce it. We all know that our skin has pores. Dermatologists refer to these pores as follicles. 
Many of us think of a follicle as a small hair, since we usually hear it being referred to as a hair follicle. However, the follicle could either contain a hair or it could be empty. Imagine the follicle as a tube extending from the surface of the skin down to the dermis or the skin layer beneath the epidermis. This deeper layer of skin, the dermis, is made up of collagen and elastin, which support the surface of the skin and provide a home for blood vessels, nerves, and other cells. Directly beneath the dermis is a layer of fat that cushions and insulates the skin and contributes to the rounded look of a youthful face. The follicle, or pore, originates from the dermis as a tube. From this tube branch glands that resemble little clusters of grapes. These are the sebaceous, or oil, glands that produce an oily substance dermatologists call sebum. The sebum flows to the top of the tube, follicle, eventually to be secreted onto the skin's surface. I should mention here that there is some debate among scientists as to whether sebum does or does not lubricate skin, but that is not important to our story. Now that we understand some of the basic anatomy of the skin, let's look at what actually causes acne. Most scientists believe that the primary cause of an acne lesion, commonly called a pimple, is something called retention hyperkeratosis. In reality, the primary event is inflammation, which then causes the retention hyperkeratosis. As we discussed, the surface of the skin, the top layer of the epidermis, is called the stratum corneum. The dead cells of the stratum corneum, which contain a large amount of the protein keratin, are supposed to fall off the skin in a natural process called exfoliation or desquamation. This stratum corneum also lines the inside of the follicle tube. Scientists believe